Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 1, verse 19 to 28. This is the word of God. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisee. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Grace. All right, guys, so we are in our third sermon through the book of John. If you guys have worshipped with us before, you know that we just got done with the series through the book of Galatians, and now we're starting John. Usually when we did the book of Galatians, we would do two sermons, and then we would take a break and do another passage. But through John, we're going to do about three to four sermons before we take a break, because John is much longer than Galatians, and if we want to get it done in like two years, we need to do this. Um, and it's also a narrative, so it's like a storyline, so it's more, it has more variety than, than, than Galatians, which is a letter. It's more repetitive in its content, so it should be good. But this is our third sermon in the series of John. And the past two weeks, we talked about verses 1 to 18. Verses 1 to 18 is what's called the prologue, or, or the, the intro to the whole book. And it sets the whole book up. And you won't really get what the rest of the book is about unless you understand verses 1 to 18. Well, so let me, because of, let me just share and, and, and tell you some of the major points that verses 1 to 18 talk about. It talks about that God is the creator of all. That's what verses 1 to 5 talk about, right? It points us back to Genesis. In the beginning, God, that's what Genesis 1-1 says. But John 1-1 says, in the beginning was the word. So it's, it's a repetition of, of, of reminding us that God is creator of all. And apparently this, this God or this word um, is not only the creator of all, but verses 9 to 13 says that he is also the redeemer of all. Not only the creator of all, but the redeemer of all, the redeemer of his people. How does he do this? Verses 14 to 18 talks about this word becoming flesh, how God became man in the person of Jesus Christ so that he may live the life that we should have lived and he died a death that we deserve to die. And thus, by doing so, redeeming us, taking upon himself our sins, giving upon us the credit of his righteousness. This is the only answer for our sins. This is the only answer for our shortcomings, that he has taken our place. As a recipient of, our, of his own wrath, he may pay the justice that we deserve and extends to us the grace and mercy um, um, and, and eternal life through him. This is, and this is the only way. This is the only way that God gets all the credit, all the honor, and all the glory for our salvation. Because we can't claim that it's anything we've done. The gospel is the only system that saves us and gives God all credit for our salvation. We can't claim any credit for it. To him be all glory and honor and power. This is what verses 1 to 18 is about. Okay? He's saying that this is, John, John the author is telling us, that this is the grand narrative of redemptive history. This is the purpose of creation of all creation, that creatures may enjoy everlasting communion with their creator. That's it. This is the purpose of it. And the creator receives all credit, all honor, all glory by, by doing all the work of redemption. And we as creatures marvel forever at him, at the extent of how far our God would go to pursue us. That's what creation's about. That's what this whole thing is about. John 1, 1 to 18 says that. And now after the prologue, after laying down the groundwork, the grand narrative, the framework, he goes on and finally starts with the actual storyline. He starts with the actual narrative where we actually get into the story. In our, in our section today, John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, we'll see more biblical evidences of this grand narrative, of this, this redemptive story, of, of why Jesus is who he actually says he is, God, 
who became flesh and died for us and redeems us. And we also see that if such a reality is true, if verses 1 to 18 is true, then how should it affect us? In what way should we respond to it? And it's this. This is the main point of the whole, of I think, the whole, the whole passage today, verses 19 to 28. If, if God truly is a creator of all, and if God truly redeemed those who would receive him, we should get to a point of utter and blessed self-forgetfulness. We should get to a point of utter and blessed self-forgetfulness. So there's three things I want to point out for our text today. One is the reason for Christian self-forgetfulness. Two, the extent of Christian self-forgetfulness. And three, the power and joy of Christian self-forgetfulness. The reason for Christian self-forgetfulness, the extent of Christian self-forgetfulness, and the power and joy of Christian self-forgetfulness. All right, let's, let's pray, and then we'll enter into our first point. Father, we come to you as, as, as rebellious creatures who often want things to be our own way, who often wants to contend your rightful place as Lord and King and decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong and decide for ourselves what we want to do uh, apart from your commands, apart from the love of others. Help us, Lord, be transfixed again by your glory, by your majesty, through your word and through your gospel, through your Son that as we study it, we may be lured again, um, and that your name and that your gospel, your cross, may shine brighter than any other glitter this world has to offer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. The first point, the reason for Christian self-forgetfulness. Okay. So the narrative here starts with the testimony of, 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 of John the Baptist. Okay. This is not to be mistaken with John, the author of the book. Okay, there, there's two different Johns we're going to go back and forth with. The John, the one who wrote this gospel, we're going to call him John the author. And there's John the Baptist. We're going to call him John the Baptist because it's John the Baptist. All right, so John the author and John the Baptist, two different Johns. Okay, so this narrative in verse 19 starts with the testimony of John the Baptist. So a brief background, John the Baptist was out there. He was, he was baptizing people. And he's proclaiming the coming of Jesus Christ, that this God has become flesh and he's, he's, he's now here. Okay, so this is how, how the verse starts. And then we see some priests and Levites were sent to interrogate him. They came and said, who are you? Why are you doing these things? And we're going to study, we're going to study verses 19 to 23 more in detail later. But for now, we're just going to, we're going to, we're going to briefly skim through it. And we're going to see one point. We're going to see the reason for John the Baptist's self-forgetfulness. Why was he so self-forgetful? Why did he seem to have no concern of his own fame, of his own, of his own glory? Okay? And what does it mean to be self-forgetful? Let me read verses 19-23. We'll revisit again our second point. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Notice how John, over and over and over again, kept denying any credit, kept denying any recognition of himself. This is, this is self-forgetfulness. We'll explore again more of this in detail, but for now I want us to note that this is a clear and natural response we should have, or somebody should have, if verses 1 to 18 is true. If God is truly the creator and redeemer of all, and he's come and humbled himself as man to die for our sins, all our fixation should be upon him. When our eyes are open to this grand narrative, the purpose of creation, just as John the author says in the prologue, we should be entranced by Jesus and marvel at just how far he would go to redeem us. Just how low our God would go, would stoop to have us for himself for eternity. This is, this is why John the Baptist kept denying any opportunity to put spotlight on himself. He, he, did, he didn't care. Are you the Christ? No. Are you a prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. What, why are you still asking about me? What, the, look at him. Stop looking at me. Stop putting the spotlight at me. And by the way, 
The reason the priests and the Levites who asked John the Baptist whether or not he was a prophet or Elijah is because a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 4 is the last chapter of that last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 prophesizes about, uh, about this Elijah, about this prophet that is to come, that is going to prepare the way for the Lord. Let me read it out, Malachi 4 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And John the Baptist kind of dressed like and lived like Elijah in the Old Testament. So, so, and he kept proclaiming the prophetic message that this prophet, this Elijah that is to come, is supposed to do. So they thought that he's this prophet. They thought that he's this Elijah figure. right? But John the Baptist kept denying it. No, no, stop, stop looking at me. After over and over and over again denying any opportunity for self-promotion, he was finally asked in verse 22, Okay, if you're not the prophet, if you're not the Elijah, so, so they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He's pretty much being asked this. John the Baptist, boil down your existence to one thing. What are you about? What is the purpose of you? Why do you exist? Why, what is the reason that you're here? And to this, he says in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Referring to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, um, that we read in our call to worship earlier. He's a voice crying out, pointing to Christ. Tell this to those who sent you. All that I am, my whole existence, everything about me, boils down to one thing. I'm a voice that points to Christ. That's it. That's all. That's the point of my existence. And by the way, John the Baptist agrees with John the author's prologue, verses 1 to 18, that Jesus is this Redeemer. This is why he was so unconcerned about himself. He could care less about how many eyes are looking upon him, and he, all he wanted to do was point people to Christ because he believes that Christ is the Redeemer of all. How do we know that? Well, aside from the fact that he said it in verse 23, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, referring to Jesus, he's not worthy to even untie his sandals. Beside the fact that he said that, look at verse 28. These things, the baptism of John the Baptist, these things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Note the location that John the Baptist was baptizing people. It was across the Jordan River. This is significant, very significant, for two reasons. Okay, I'm going to note two things here. First, why did John the author choose to include such a minute detail that seems unimportant? Why does it matter where he baptized, as long as he baptized people, right? So one, why did John the author choose to include this minute detail? Two, why did John the Baptist choose this location? Okay, so first one, why did John the author choose to include this minute detail? It shows that this isn't a fake made-up story. It's saying, go ahead and check. Check what the priests and the Levites mentioned here. Check, check where the location, this, this is something that happened in actual history. There's witnesses, there are people involved, there are there, there's, a, there's a scene of crime, so to speak, involved, if, if you want to bring an alibi into it, right? This is where it happened. Ask anybody. Ask, ask those involved. And remember, this gospel was a public document. It was sent out among the churches back then. It wasn't some secret thing being kept secret. It's like, no, here, everybody read it. God became flesh. This is something that really happened. This isn't some fable. This isn't some moral story somebody made up to teach us about right and wrong. This is, this is actually a point in time in, in tangible history. This happened. John the author included an actual place and people to affirm his claim. But second, why did John the Baptist choose to baptize in the Jordan? If you look at the Old Testament, the Jordan River plays a huge role in redemptive history, in salvation history. Okay, here's a brief a bit of Old Testament history. Okay, if you read the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, it records the momentous triumph of God's people entering into the, the promised land, okay, into the land that the Canaanites lived in. The Canaanites were known as a particularly sinful people, group of people. And it happened that they resided in this land 
that God promised Israel will inherit one day, the, the promised land. And, and God promised this to them in Abraham back in Genesis 12, that leave Ur, you'll, you'll enter this land, and then uh, this promised land, and you'll have, you'll have descendants, and you'll, 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 have a na- you'll be a great nation. And, and God promised this promised land uh, to Israel and, and to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 as, as he delivers them from Egypt to travel to this promised land. Now, after hundreds of years of traveling, leaving Ur in Genesis 12, arriving in Egypt, falling into slavery in Egypt, then being delivered out of Egypt, and then more travel, hundreds and hundreds of years, finally they're there. Finally, they see the promised land before them. This is where the book of Joshua comes in, okay? And guess, guess where it is that they have to cross in order to get into this promised land? The Jordan River, the very same Jordan River. Joshua 3, 9 to 11, this is what it says. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, this is them after, he, their, 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 the promised land is finally there. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how we shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And after the Israelites crossed the Jordan in a miraculous way, by the way, in, in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, Joshua 6 onwards, they finally triumph and had victory into the promised land. What is John the Baptist implying here by choosing to baptize people in the Jordan River? He's saying that he has come. The same Lord that redeemed his people out of slavery of Egypt and guided them into the promised land through the Jordan River in the Old Testament, which is, which is foreshadowing of, of, of the ultimate promised land, right, of the new heavens and the new earth, the place we'll be with, with God forever. He has come, and our final resting place with him as his redeemed people, the same God who passed over before them into the Jordan, is the same God who stands among you, whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. This is the light of life. This is the word that became flesh. He is here. He is Jesus. He is the only way you can be with God. You can get into this promised land. He's our creator. The same God of the Old Testament, the same God that Isaiah prophesies in chapter 40, will come. He is the one that will guide all of God's people to the promised land, not by carrying a weapon, not by military might, as the Israels did in the Old Testament, but by carrying a cross, by humility, by sacrifice, by laying down his rights, by selflessness for the sake of others like a sacrificial lamb. And the words that came out of John the Baptist's mouth when Jesus came over in front of him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was captivated by the humility of his God, the very character of God that saved him, that saves us, his humility, the virtue that brought this grand redemptive plan into motion the first place. He will lead his people into the true promised land, where we will dwell with him forever. Look at him, John says. Look at him. This is all my life is about. This is the purpose of me. It's not about myself. It's about him. He's a point of creation. He's a point of me. My story is about his story. My life is about his glory. Take your eyes off me. Look at him. I'm nothing, but Christ is all. This is why he was so self-forgetful, because he truly believed this is, this is the God that came. This is his God, the only God that came and died for him. Stop looking at me. Okay, second point. That was the reason of Christian self-forgetfulness. Second point, the extent of Christian self-forgetfulness. I want to talk about two things here. The depth of Christian humility and how we grow in humility. Okay, the depth of Christian humility and how we grow in humility. First, the depth of Christian humility. I want to point out something very interesting that tells us just how deep John the Baptist's self-forgetfulness and humility is. Look at all that John the Baptist denies in verses 19 to 21. He denies being the Christ. Okay, that's obvious. He's not the Christ. But he also denies being the Elijah. 
and he denies being the prophet. Now, as we discussed earlier, the Elijah and the prophet, this is a prophecy of Malachi 4, right? They thought this was him, so, so he said, are you him? And he said, no, stop looking at me. However, although John the Baptist denies being the prophet and being this um, Elijah figure, it is interesting that when you see how Jesus describes John the Baptist in Matthew 11, and if you see how an angel of the Lord describes John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, they actually say that he is this prophet. They say that he is this awaited Elijah figure. Let me read it out to you. Matthew 11, verses 11 to 14. This is Jesus speaking. Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent taken by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. All the prophets until John, including John, prophesied. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus says that John the Baptist is a prophet and he is this Elijah that is to come. The one said in Malachi 4. Well, that's weird. Why did John deny being that? And then Luke 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 and 16 to 17. This is an angel of the Lord as he came, as he visited John the Baptist's father before John the Baptist was born. But the angel said to him, to John the Baptist's father, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. This is John the Baptist. And he will turn many of the children of Israel into the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is exactly the prophecy in Malachi 4, 5. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, John the Baptist is this prophet, is this Elijah figure that is to come and pray the Lord of the Lord. The angel affirms it as well, but John the Baptist denies it. Why is that? Why would he deny these things about himself that is true? Either John the Baptist is lying, or Jesus is lying, or the angel is lying. Well, of course we can cancel out Jesus and the angel lying, because I don't need to explain that. And John the Baptist, he wouldn't be a liar either, because then Jesus wouldn't have called him the greatest of all people, of all men, born of women. So why then? Why, if no one's lying here, why would John the Baptist deny his identity as testified by Jesus and by the angel? This is why. A well-known theologian and Bible commentator said this. The person who really has such a role, the person who is really perhaps Elijah or the prophet in Malachi 4, 5, does not know it and does not want it. John the Baptist said no because he could care less about who he is. He probably doesn't even know who he is. <laughs> he doesn't care. His humility, every fiber of his being, points to Christ. All he's concerned about is pointing others to Christ. He is absolutely, utterly disinterested about anything that has to do with putting any kind of spotlight on him. He's he despises it. Remember we said earlier, um, when asked, what is the purpose of you, John the Baptist? What, what, what's, what's your point? And he said, I'm a witness to Christ. This is my identity. This is all that I am. And see, what is the purpose of a witness? It's to testify to the subject of his testimony, to point to the person he's testifying to, which in this case is Jesus. His job, his life, his passion is to say, not me, but him. This is his purpose. This is what the Elijah figure is called to do. This is what this prophet is, 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 this is his whole reason of being. The person who really has such a role, the person who is really perhaps Elijah or the prophet, does not know it and does not want it. The true Elijah figure in Malachi 4, the true prophet who is to point others to the Lord in Malachi chapter 4, could care less about being the prophet, could care less about being this Elijah figure. He doesn't care because the purpose of his being is to point others to Christ. I might even say he doesn't even know that he was it. Probably because it's not a part of pointing others to Christ that puts spotlights on himself and he has no concern about it. It wasn't even a category in his brain. He says to that, so what? 
So what? Stop looking at me. Look at Christ. Friends, what a challenging reality this is. <laughs> this is the extent, this is the depth of Christian self-forgetfulness. To cast our eyes and our cares deeply upon Christ, that it leads us to a blessed self-forgetfulness. I wonder how many of us have truly experienced the blessedness of such self-forgetfulness. I know I haven't, and I do truly long to experience it. Although he is the prophet, although he is this Elijah figure, you know what humility does? It makes him say, so what? I don't care. I don't want to know about any of that. Just look at Christ. That's all I care about. Look at him, the straps of whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. By the way, this is the very attitude that Jesus himself exemplified throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus, who though in verses 1 to 18, we saw is very God of very God, is this only God of the Old Testament. And it's made clear that he is God. He's the creator of all. He's the Lord of all. He has all authority. He's the giver of life. He has divine rights. He has divine authority. He's God the Son equal to God the Father. Just read John chapter 1, verse 1. But you know how Jesus speaks about himself? in the book of John, in the Gospel of John? It's not on the screen, but I'll just read it out. This is what Jesus says about himself. Although he is God, although he has right to claim all authority, this is how, what he says. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John 5.30, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7.16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Few more. John 7.28, so Jesus proclaimed, as he thought in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Last two, John 8, 42. I have come not of myself, but he who sent me, John 8, 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. This is God speaking. This is the only being in the universe that deserves all glory, that deserves all credit. He could very well say, I've come of my own will. He could very well say, this is my commandments, follow them. He has all the right to do so, but he was self-forgetful. He said, look at the Father. Stop looking at me. This is humility, exemplified and embodied by our very God. A quote from a very good book that played a huge role in my growth as a, as a Christian. It's called Humility by A.W. Tozer. I, I recommend you to get it. It's a free PDF online, Humility, A.W. Tozer. Um, it says this about, about the verses in John that Jesus speaks. These verses teach us what the essential nature in life is of that redemption which is Christ accomplished and now communicates. It is this. He was nothing. The the God, the Father, might be all. He resigned himself with his will and his powers entirely for the Father to work in him of his own power, his own will, and his own glory, of his whole mission, with all his works and his teaching. Of all this he said, it is not I, I am nothing. I have given myself to the Father to work. I am nothing. The Father is all. Could Jesus have said, I am the King of kings and I have all authority? Of course. Could Jesus have said, I am equal with the Father? Absolutely. John 1, 1 testifies to that. Could Jesus have said, I am here to do my own will? Sure. Which, by the way, he does in John chapter 10. He says, I lay down my life of my own accord. So it would be correct for him to say that I'm doing this of my own will. But he chooses to say and focus on the Father. Could, could he have said, listen to my teaching? Oh, of, of course he can. But he doesn't. He says, listen to the Father's teaching. Jesus, God the Son, who took on flesh, that's what he did. He was that's, what, that's why John the Baptist was captivated by this. Even God himself kept pointing to the Father, the Father, the Father. Don't look at me. Stop looking at me. Look at Christ. Oh, to look at the life of John the Baptist and to look at the example of our God who emptied himself 
encountered equality with God, not something to be grasped, but, but, but let it go and took upon flesh for our sins. And then look at our own lives. That so very often screams, me. <laughs> when our prayers should be more about aligning our wills to his will, we so often make our prayers about aligning his will to ours. When our desires should submit to his, we so often make our Christianity about him doing things for our agendas. <clears throat> when we're called to give our lives for the flourishing of others, we would rather use others for our own good. When we should be consumed to point eyes to Jesus, we too often are too preoccupied with managing our social image and our gadgets to point people's eyes toward us and even use Christianity to do that. When he said, I've died for you, my work is what will save you. You can do nothing to save yourself. We in our pride reject it and either don't receive it or truly receive it, but then daily doubt it. As if our salvation is dependent upon what I can do and not what he has done. Oh, to look at the life of John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus and say how far we fall from that. So, the second thing I want to talk about in this point is how then can we, as those who are in Christ, grow in humility? And the reason why I want to give these more practical applications is because I've been speaking of self-forgetfulness and I've been speaking of humility as if it's some kind of good place to, to get to if you want to get there. You're a Christian, great, but if you want to, if you want to be a super Christian, you know, do this extra step. It's true, being self-forgetful is a blessed state to be in. Not state, I guess. It's a blessed, it's a blessed attitude to have. We'll be we'll enjoying our God and stop being so concerned about ourselves. But it's, it's not optional. <laughs> it's, not a re- it's not a recommendation. It's not that, oh, great, you're a Christian. If you want to take the next step, here's Christianity 102. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a command. Our God tells us, you, you be this, for this is what our Lord has done. Because it's, it's a weighty command, I want to help us and give us uh, two practical things that I think hopefully is, is also from the text. Okay, and then we're going to get to our third point. We'll receive the joy and the power of Christian humility. But first, two things. How can we as Christians grow in humility, grow in, um, um, in, in self-forgetfulness? There's many ways. This isn't an exhaustive list, but this is two things that I see from this text. One, beware of self-depreciation, which is fake humility. Two, count being brought low as training in holiness. Beware of self-depreciation. That just means self, self-devaluing. Beware of that. That's not humility. That, that's fake humility. Two, count being brought low as, as training in holiness. First, beware of self-depreciation, which is fake humility. Self-depreciation is when you think that you're worthless. You convince yourself that you're worthless. You have no value. And because you're worthless, because you have no value, you don't deserve anything anyways. So this causes you to act in a very humble way. and You, you, just, you're, you, you become a yes man. You become a yes woman. You just say yes to everything because you don't have rights, you're, you're not valuable, you're, you know, we think that we're trash, so it's just, okay, I'll just, I'll just, I'll do what you want me to do. This isn't, this isn't humility. I'll explain later, but, and this is maybe a cliche saying to some of you, but I think it's beneficial um, um, in this time, it's, it's, it's a sentence, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking less of yourself is still having your eyes on you. You're still focusing on yourself. It's still me, me, me. It's still I'm nothing. I'm unworthy. I'm, I'm trash. But why was John the Baptist so humble? It's not because he had low self-esteem, but because he focused on Christ. He was transfixed by Christ. Why was Jesus Christ humble? Not because he had low self-esteem, but because he was focused on the Father and leading others to him. Their eyes were off themselves unto God. Father and Jesus being God, a very God. So Jesus had his eyes on himself, but that's another thing to talk about. Our humility must not be sourced out of low self-esteem. Our humility must be caused by a fixation we have to God's glory and the benefit of others. Here's the difference. If the focus of, low, of humility is low self-esteem, if you think that you have no rights whatsoever, you're going to let yourself be trampled on by people. You're going to let yourself be abused, and you're not going to care about it. That's not humility. 
But when your focus is other people, when your focus is God's glory and pointing others to this Christ who has come, the Redeemer of all, the Creator of all, you will know when to lay down your rights and when to hold on to it only for the benefit of the other person. If you are focused on the other person's good, you will lay down your rights, but also at times you'll hold on to it, not for your own self, not for your pride, but for the benefit of other people. I'm going I'm to give an example here in a little bit, but let me just share that Jesus and John the Baptist knew in wisdom when to lay down their rights and when to hold on to it, not because of self-depreciation. Sometimes they held on to their rights, if, if, only if, it would benefit others and point him to God. For example, John laid down his rights when he was asked, are you this prophet? Are you this Elijah? I, I could care less. Stop looking at me. Just look at Christ. He, he didn't care about those things. But then in verse 26, he speaks very authoritatively to them, almost with a prophetic authority, if you can say that. He says in verse 26, John answered him, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He just told the most religious people of his time, you don't know Christ. Somebody with low self-esteem won't do that, you see. But that was what was most beneficial for them to hear at the time. See, if he had low self-esteem, he will never know when to be meek and when to be bold in meekness, when to be weak, when to lay down our rights, and when to hold on to it only, only for the benefit of others. Christ does this too later, but let me share an example of my own life. Um, when I was working with uh, Campus Outreach, which is a college ministry uh, in, in the U.S., um, I had one of the guys in my discipleship group, he has a, has a servant heart. He would, he would say yes to a lot of things, he would lay down his rights, and he would go set up chairs and break down and do all these things that are often not get, not, uh, all these responsibilities that don't really often get much recognition. He would care less, he would lay down and do it. Because he was so selfless, because he was such a, has such a servant heart, people tend to just assume he'll do anything. People would just tend to assume that he'll, if there's a job that needs to be done, he'll do it. Um, so me and my sin, I wasn't thinking. And one day, there was a guy that just became a Christian, or I think is considering Christ. He came to one of our meetings, and I wanted him to have a ride back, because he didn't have a ride back. So I just volunteered this Stanford, that's his name, I just volunteered Stanford um, to give him a ride because he kind of lives near him. Um, I was like, yeah, Stanford will take you, <laughs> assuming that he'll do it, because, you know, that's what I'm thinking. Um, and Stanford came up to me after the meeting, and he said, hey, man, I really don't appreciate you just volunteering me without asking my permission first. Um, I know he lives near me, but I actually have another meeting elsewhere, and I, I can't do it at this time. And that was exactly what I needed to hear, because then I, I had to ask myself a really humbling question, am I just using the people under my leadership for my own agenda? Or am I truly serving them and loving them? Or am I just assuming things of them? See, he held on to his right. He was bold. Not because he was too selfish to give him a ride, but because he knew I needed to hear that. And that's a lesson I will cherish and I hold on with me even today. And I'm glad he held on to his right. But 99% of the time, he laid it down. He said, I'll serve, I'll do whatever needs to be done. But the times, he, but it wasn't done from low self-esteem. The times that he held on to his right for my benefit, he did so. Jesus did this too. Yes, his whole life was about laying down his divine authority, right? He emptied himself and ultimately unto a cross for our sins. But at times he did exercise his divine authority for the benefit and only for the benefit of others. He would say things, your sins are forgiven. That's divine authority. He held on to it. He said it. He wasn't humble because he had low self-esteem. He held on. He knew who he was, but he chose to lower himself. But when what he was was beneficial for others, he said it. Your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. No man can do that. That's divine authority. He healed people. He, he cast out demons. Those are divine authorities. He exercised and held on to if it meant for the benefit of others. But, yes, his whole ministry, his whole life, his whole being was characterized by the laying down of his rights onto a cross, by humbling himself, by saying, don't look at me, look at those whom I will save. That's, that's who I want with me forever. 
Before he was captured and crucified, Peter fought the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus told him to stop. Remember what he said? Stop fighting them. Do you not know that if it was up to me, I have a legion, I have legions of angels in my command. If I wanted to, I easily could. But I'm giving myself to the cross voluntarily, willingly. I'm laying it down. I'm laying down my rights. Okay, the cause of humility cannot be self-depreciation, cannot be a fake view, a false view of, 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 of less value. This is self-centered. It's still focusing on me and it'll lead to abuse. It must be caused by fixation of the benefit of others and pointing them to the grand story of salvation, to Christ, the hero of that story. If this is the cause of your self-forgetfulness, you will, you will know when to hold on to your rights for the love of others and when to lay it down. But mostly, I would say, you're going to be called to lay it down. Mostly, we're going to lay down our rights for our God. When to do what? I can't teach you that. That's called wisdom. And you have to, we all have to grow in it as we pursue a lifelong of humility. All right, second point. First, it's not self-depreciation. It's a fixation of Christ and pointing others to Christ. Second, count moments of humiliation as training ground in holiness. Look, we got we to gotta be honest with where we are. We are not this humble person yet. I, I don't think you are. I know I'm not. If you are, tell me how you got there, and you know, I'll buy you lunch. Um, we're not there. We're far from it. All of us are, and we have to be honest with that. Okay, sermons often can have this like movie effect. You know, when you leave like a really epic movie, and then as you walk out, there's still like the theme song playing in the back, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm gonna save the world," and you know, you're all that. Sermons can do that sometimes. You leave, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm gonna be self-forgetful," and you're like, you know, I don't know, become a monk or something, and you don't do that. It's not where you are. You're not going to change from one sermon. It's just not going to happen. It's going to take a long time. I'm not there. Okay, so be honest with where you are. And, and, and sometimes you're going to fall too far on the self-depreciation side where you're going to give up your rights way too much when you should hold on to it. Sometimes you're going to be on the self-conceited side where you're holding on to your rights more than you should and you should lay it down. I don't know where you are, but the best moments to train to get to that point of self-forgetfulness is when life humbles you. That word someone said to you, or gossip circulating because someone you trusted with a secret betrayed you. That time when somebody takes advantage of your failures for their own benefit, or that time when you're misunderstood and someone thinks the worst of you. Be honest with what you're feeling. Say, okay, this is where I am. I have a long journey towards humility. Then ask yourself, which situation is this? Is this a time where I need to speak up for the benefit of that person and hold on to my rights like Stanford did? I took advantage of him. He spoke up for my benefit. Or is this a time where I need to lay down my rights for that person's well-being and be okay with being misunderstood for a while and be okay with not having to explain myself every single time, every single minute reason, or whatever the cause is. It takes wisdom to get there, but, but we're, we're not going to humble ourselves. It's just, I mean, you might every now and then, but mostly count it God's grace to bring upon you moments of humility that forces you to be humble and be self-forgetful. Count it as a training ground to holiness. Okay, beware. Oh, let's do first point. The reason for self-forgetfulness is... is, is is, is Christ being fixated upon Christ, upon this Redeemer. Um, the extent of self-forgetfulness, it's all you are. It's, it's who you, it's not something you do. You don't clock in at nine and clock out at five. This is your being. You're, you're, you're a witness to Christ. You point to him. How do you grow more and more to becoming that person? Beware of self-depreciation, which is fake humility, and count every opportunity of being brought low as an opportunity of training and holiness. Last point. Those applications won't matter if we don't get to the power and the joy of Christian self-forgetfulness. Where did John the Baptist get the power and joy to sustain him? Look again at verse 27. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm unworthy, I'm not worthy to untie. His joy and his power of, of self-forgetfulness, of humility, of getting rid of any spotlight that points to him and, and all he wants to do is point to Christ. 
is because he says he's unworthy to approach this Jesus. But yet, at the same time, he has the courage, he has the audacity to point out the most religious people in his time and say, I'm not worthy to accept Christ, but you don't know him. What does that imply? That implies that John the Baptist is making a claim that he knows Christ. He's unworthy to even touch his sandals, but yet he knows him. How do those things go together? How can somebody be unworthy of somebody, but yet be in a relationship with them? Because of this, he realizes that the grand narrative of salvation, written by John the author in verses 1 to 18, which is also uh, 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 what he, he, he um, confesses to as he baptizes people, points to Christ on, on the Jordan River, this grand salvation of history, it's also his story. He realizes that it isn't just some kind of grand meta-narrative, some kind of grand scheme out there of the world, but it's his story. It's his narrative. And the main character of that story didn't just die for some random people out there. He died for him. This is how you can be unworthy of touching somebody's sandals, but claim to be in a relationship with that person all at the same time. Because he's not, he doesn't have that relationship based on what he did, but based on what the hero of this redemptive story has done for him. He realizes that the God, the same God who took his people across the Jordan into the promised land of the Old Testament is the same Lord that takes him to the promised land, to the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. By his cross. This God is his God. This Redeemer is his Savior. It's not just God out there doing his thing. God did it for him. That's why he can claim those two things at the same time. Because he has taken hold of the salvation as offered by this God in the person of Jesus, who humbled himself so that he may live. He realizes the true humility of God is something that he benefited from. It's not just for people out there, it's for him. How are you not captivated by that if, if you truly believe and say this is true? To a God who laid down his rights, become man, and died for you. And if you've claimed to truly receive that, how are you not captivated by it? The only reason why you have eternal life, the only reason why you're able to have a relationship with the person whose sandals you're not worthy to touch is because he climbed on a cross to have you. Another quote from A.W. Tozer. It's a long one, so stick with me. This is what John the Baptist was transfixed by. In, in this view, it is, inconceivable, it, it is of inconceivable importance that we should have right thoughts of what Christ is, of what really constitutes him, the Christ, and especially of what, we may be counted his, what, what may be counted his chief characteristic, the root and essence of all his character as our Redeemer. There can be but one answer. It is his humility. What is the incarnation? Incarnation is God becoming man. What is the incarnation but his heavenly humility? His emptying himself and becoming man. What is his life on earth but humility? His taking the form of a servant. And what is his atonement but humility? He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And what is his ascension and his glory but humility exalted to the throne and crowned with glory? In his birth, in his life, in his death, in his sitting on the throne, it is all, it is nothing, but humility. Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling himself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. And so he is still in the midst of the throne, the meek and lowly Lamb of God. Looking at Revelation chapter 5, when John, the author of our book, is given insight into the heavenly throne saying, behold, what? The Lamb of God who was slain. You will see in the throne of God the body of Christ slain for you eternally. The humility of God characterizes everything that he is. Have you taken, have you taken hold of such a love? Has it become yours personally and not just some grand narrative out there? Is this Christ yours? Have you truly received him? The humility of God embodied in human form. The one who created you also died for you so that he can have you. This is the only joy and power that will sustain you, sustain me, 
in continuing pursuing a long life pursuit of humility, of self-forgetfulness, because it transfixes us into the grand narrative of creation and transfixes us into the main character of that story. How can you ignore such a great salvation? And if you have accepted it, may the story of ultimate humility never become boring to you. I pray that it continues to change you and bid you to go and live and die for this Savior. As it points eyes to him, lay down your rights. Don't hold on so tightly to them. Not because you're worthless, but because in Christ you have a price tag that no amount of silver and gold can buy. And now, lay it down. Lay it down, for he did the same for you. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing example Christ has shown us that God became man and took upon a cross, was obedient, emptied himself, though equal with God, emptied himself and took upon himself the nature of a servant, took upon himself flesh, that we may live eternally as sinners who are unworthy to touch even your sandals. We may live eternally with you and be known by you. Father, let such humility break us to our knees and let such humility represent may be the representation of who we are. And let us ask the question, have we truly accepted this redemption story, this story of salvation? Have we truly accepted the Savior of all, that he is also ours? Not because we're good enough, not because we've done good things, not because we have a good track record, exactly the opposite, but because we can't be good enough and because we're tired of trying of our own strength to change and be the kind of person we know we should be because then even then we know the sin that are deeply rooted in us only you and what you have done can cleanse us from it father let this god who led his people across the jordan into the promised land the same god who we are baptized into let this same god affect our hearts personally and become our savior and lord after that let us lay down our rights and live a life of humility as a follower, as a representative, as an ambassador, as a witness to you. And care not of any spotlight that points to us, but care only to how to turn hearts and eyes and minds to you, the great Savior, the creator of all. Thank you for this love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.